We hope this explanation of God's Word enriches your life. To help you understand the audience for this talk, we suggest you read the context material on the About Us page. Please read also our copyright page before recording or reproducing any material from philipjensen.com. This talk was recorded at the lunchtime campus Bible study, where it was delivered for university students. Well, Peter is one of the uh, most colourful and likeable characters in the New Testament. In fact, people find him a very easy person to relate to. I think not the least because uh, he makes so many mistakes. He tends to open his mouth to change his feet and he makes them on a grand scale. He's the disciple God, that Jesus accused of being Satan in the words that he spoke. But he's also the one who you know, got to eventually, by random chance, get it right as well. That is, Peter was the fisherman of Galilee, married, at least we presume so, because he has a mother-in-law. People generally don't take on without a wife or husband. He's uh, the outgoing leader of all the disciples and becomes one. He's the first to profess Christ in Matthew 16 or Mark chapter 8. He's one of the inner band of, not just the inner band of 12, but the inner band of the three who uh, Jesus particularly spent time with and at great and critical moments. So on the Mount of Transfiguration, there were only three apostles there then and Peter was one of them. Or in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prays and the night he was betrayed, he took three particularly closely with him to pray with him and Peter was one of them there. Peter was the one who followed Jesus to the trial and he was the one who denied Jesus three times. Though his uh, friend John could run faster than he could and could get to the tomb at the day of resurrection quicker than Peter could, John was the kind who stood at the door peeking in. Peter was the kind who just barred straight in there to see where Jesus was no longer there to be seen. Jesus did see Peter and saw him privately after the resurrection. He appeared to 500 disciples at one time. He appeared to the 12, but he appeared personally to Peter. Something of it you can see in John chapter 21. And Peter was the one who was the spokesman on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came upon them and they started to speak and all the world started to hear the gospel. He followed through with the evangelisation of Jerusalem and in the early chapters of Acts it's Peter and John and Peter in particular who speaks the message of the gospel in the city of Jerusalem. In chapter 4, he and John are threatened by the authorities and he makes that wonderful profession of faith that he'd rather obey God than man and so he's going to continue to speak of Jesus. It's a nice profession of faith to, to make but chapter 5 he finds the reality of it because there he's, he's, he's again taken captive and this time he is flogged and whipped for his desire to preach on Jesus and rejoices that he can suffer with the Christ. By chapter 12, we find him in prison in Jerusalem, although miraculously rescued. He was the one who was used by God to bring the first convert from the Gentile world, the non-Jewish world, into salvation, and then also to argue with the Jewish Christians that they should accept him, and so into acceptance. Uh, the the, the distinction and division between Jew and Gentile is a very great one in the first century and Peter is the bridge. 
He is the one who established that the gospel was for all the world. Chapter 12, he is released from prison and you expect him to continue to take leadership of the Christians from there on in. But that is the end of him in the book of Acts. He appears quickly in chapter 15 to once again argue for the rights of Gentile Christians to be fully accepted. But he plays no further part because it doesn't fit in with the schema of the book of Acts which is about how the gospel got from Jewish Jerusalem to Gentile ends of the earth. And once Peter has done his work and established the right of the Gentiles to be converted, it is the great apostle to the Gentiles, the apostle Paul, who takes over the main running for the second half of the book, or a little bit more from chapter 13 through to chapter 28. The rest of Peter's life we know almost nothing of. Um, We have two epistles of his in the New Testament, but we have no other great references to him. He's mentioned in Galatians chapter 2 as having had a disagreement with the Apostle Paul in Antioch over the subject of the Gentiles. He's mentioned in 2nd and 4th century writings as having been uh, associated with Rome, having been martyred upside down by Nero in AD 64. We know about the Neronian persecution and it's worth those of you who know very little of the historical background of Christianity and especially those of you who are not Christians and wonder about whether we're dealing with fantasy and fiction world for you to know that in AD 64, which is only 30 years after Jesus was crucified, in the centre of the universe, namely in Rome, the emperor of the, of the empire that stretched from India through to Britain, that emperor knew about Christians and there were enough of them there for the populace to dislike them so that he could blame the Christians for the fire that he himself had set to destroy the city of Rome because he was as mad as a two-bob watch. And, but he, there, Christianity had spread from the backwaters of Galilee all the way to the capital of Rome to be known by the emperor and to be hated by the populace within 30 years of the death of Jesus. Uh, that's evidence that comes completely from outside of the New Testament. Whether Peter was there at that time, we have no record and that can be certain. The records and the references that we have to it are a little bit too late for us to be sure, although there's no particular reason to doubt them either. It's just we don't know uh, by that time. Papias and Eusebius are a little late. They're not first-hand eyewitnesses. They are telling the traditions that have come down to them. Maybe right, maybe wrong. You've just got to put a question mark at the end of it. In 1 Peter 1 verse 1, we have him introduced to us as the apostle of Jesus Christ. Unlike uh, the writer Paul, he gives no defence for his apostleship because everybody knows that Peter was one of the apostles, whereas Paul, Paul is the baker's dozen. He's the 13th apostle. He's the odd one out and he always has to prove that he is an apostle. Peter... It's straightforward. He is the apostle. Uh, The word apostle is a word which means messenger or ambassador or official representative. (coughs) It is a noble high title, uh, official representative, ambassador. But just as with the English word, the word ambassador which refers to a particular state in the diplomatic corps which is very high and significant and stands for one who represents the government officially overseas, the word then kind of gets degenerated down to anybody who represents Australia anywhere. So, you know, he's a great ambassador for Australia in the world tiddlywink society. And 
yes, he represents Australia elsewhere, and but he's not an official kind of governmental representative. Well, the word ambassador, the word apostle is just like that. It means the messenger, the sent out one, the representative. It's the only title in the New Testament which has of Jesus Christ. So you don't have a teacher of Jesus Christ, a prophet of Jesus Christ, a speaker of tongues of Jesus Christ. Only one you ever have is the apostle, because he is the one who is the official representative of Jesus Christ. It is a significantly different role than any other role in the New Testament, which is why, in one sense, every church has an apostle who has started the church, yet in another sense there were the twelve. And even the apostle Paul identifies in Acts that the twelve are separate, though he, the thirteenth, is also on the same standing. To them, to the apostles, was given all the promises of inspiration to convey the gospel faithfully. In the Gospel of John, there are five passages which talk about the coming of the Spirit in chapters 14, 15, 16, and they are passages which talk about the role of the Spirit in authenticating the message of the Gospel of Jesus to the world and to the church. And that role of the Spirit is given to the apostles. And that is their task to faithfully represent Jesus to the world, to accurately remember what it is that he said and to record it and to teach its significance. That doesn't mean they're perfect and everything they say is always right. Uh, Galatians chapter 2 is a good example where Peter gets it wrong. But it does mean they could speak and write the very words of God. And so we have an apostle writing to us the letter. This is the apostolic letter of Peter. Chapter 1 verse 1 tells us of its destination. Uh, those of you who are new amongst us, by the way, we usually do a chapter at a time. It is extraordinary to have a campus Bible study just on two verses, isn't it? Uh, we've got to go through the opening chapter very slowly, I've discovered, because 1 Peter, chapter 1 in particular, right through to about chapter 2 verse 10, is so jam-packed with information that in one study you'll have severe indigestion for the rest of the week. So we're taking it slowly. Chapter 1 verse 1 tells us where he's writing to. I'm sorry my maps are a bit small, but there you go. And it's in what we would call Turkey or Asia Minor are the states that he is referring to by name there as uh, uh, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. Here is a blow-up of that area with those states. The green is Cappadocia. Pontus, Bithynia is up there. Galatia, Asia. In other words, the whole of the, the uh, Asia Minor uh, area of the whole of kind of Turkey area he's talking about except the southern border of the Mediterranean uh, Sea. In AD 61 uh, Pontus, Pontus and Bithynia become one state rather than two and so the fact that he has got them two and separated them that way may indicate that he is writing before that point in time. Uh, we can't be sure of the exact timing but that's who he's writing to. It's quite a large area and in early 2nd century Christianity it was an area strong in Christianity because the governor of that area wrote to the emperor and we have a copy of the letter in which he asked what do you do with, uh, with Christians and how do you handle them, what's the official public policy about what to do with them because this is what they believe. One of the earliest non-New uh, Testament references to Christians from an official source comes from this very area. Paul visited some of them, but not others. How did Peter get involved in them? We don't know. But to find out the source of Paul, Peter's letter, come with me to chapter 5, verses 12 to 14. Chapter 5, verses 12 to 14. 
For there we read, with the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging and testifying that this is the true grace of God, stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Silas, every commentator tells me, is Paul's friend, but I can't quite work out how they know that. It doesn't seem to be such an unusual name that only Paul, this is the only Silas in the world, but it is commonly seen as Paul's friend Silas, helped him. How did he help him? Well, it may be that he wrote the letter as the scribe, but the word more likely means he carried the letter. He was the deliverer of the letter. Remember, Australia Post didn't exist in those days, which, uh, I was going to say, which means they most likely got the letter, but that's rude, especially as just the other day I got a letter addressed to the wrong address and it still arrived at my house, uh, so I thank Australia Post. I don't know how they found me, but there you go. So actually, you've got a good postal system. The ancient world didn't have a good postal system and you had a Sylvanus, a Silas, carrying it around for you. It could be that he also helped him write it. She who is in Babylon sends greeting. We're not quite sure who she is. The most common way of understanding it is the she is the church, because the church is always seen as a feminine, being the bride of Christ. And Babylon uh, was a city of, uh, that had been destroyed a long time before this and was just a, a, a ruin in a country town nowadays. But Babylon was uh, the code name for Rome. And so the source seems to be the church in Rome where Peter is now ministering. That would fit in with the later centuries tradition that Peter was associated with Rome. However, she could be referring to Peter's wife, especially as the sentence finishes talking about his son Mark uh, and Babylon, and indeed Mark's mother-in-law uh, was in Jerusalem and Peter was well known as the apostle of the Jews and Jerusalem was their centre. And Babylon could be used metaphorically, that is, in exile, in slavery. So he is writing to people in slavery, writing from the same viewpoint of slavery, namely Babylon. <coughs> I think that is the emphasis of Babylon rather than Rome, but you can't prove it. I think church is more likely than his wife, but I can't prove that either, seeing he doesn't tell us who she is, the cat's mother in Rome. So I take it that the, it's the church in exile, possibly, probably, in Rome. There's no obvious reason within the letter why he would need to use a code name for Rome, especially as you'll see when we look at chapter 2, verses 13 to 17, he is very positive about obeying the emperor and being on good terms with the government. So it's not a revolutionary letter, it's not a kind of letter that if it fell in the hands of the Romans you could see any reason why they'd go and execute him. So why he would need to use a code name for Rome, unless it's just the convention of Christians at the time, which may be so because of the book of Revelation, chapter 17. But I think the emphasis is on the fact that he's in exile. Now this introduces the greetings. She and Mark send greetings. The early traditions link Peter with Mark, as they do with Rome, and uh, that is part of the reason why the Gospel of Mark has been accepted as being the, really the ideas of Peter and understanding of Peter. Mark was a Jerusalemite. He was a relative of Barnabas who went on the first missionary journey with Paul but went home halfway through the uh, mission. He went back to Jerusalem when the Gentiles started getting the main point of the mission. 
Uh, next time they went on a missionary journey, Barnabas wanted to take Mark again. Paul wouldn't have it, so Barnabas and Paul had a fight over it and Barnabas and Mark went one way and Paul went the other way. We read in Colossians chapter 4 uh, that Mark is back with Paul and are good friends. That Paul's friends, Silas and Mark, are with Peter in 1 Peter shows in part the small nature of Christianity and also indicates the error people have of talking about Peter and his gospel and Paul and his gospel as if there's two gospels uh, and John has his gospel and Jude has his gospel. I suspect the Christians are actually working much closer together than modern scholarship ever works together. But the nature of the greetings is that mutual love and affection. Uh, greet one another with a kiss of love. Uh, Christians are to invade the personal space of one another in love and holiness. The kind of invasion that is reserved for the family and the closest of friends because Christians are to be calling each other brother and sister and to treat each other with that love that is genuinely of a brotherly, sisterly character and therefore in love or in holiness as Paul puts the same idea. Verse 14 speaks of the peace, the victory that is ours in Christ Jesus. Uh, Peace in modern English means cessation of war. The Jew wasn't ever as silly as that. Um, We're very silly people. You're never at peace when the war stops. You're only at peace when you win the war. There's a very, very big difference. So America, Australia is not at peace over the Vietnam War. There is deep angst in our community and all that generation who lived through that war If you want to get them upset, you want to get them angry, you want to get them uh, emotionally stirred, just start talking about Vietnam with them. But the Second World War, oh, we're at peace there. Uh, There's no problem with the peace there. Mind you, our Japanese friends don't like discussing it quite so much, do they? Because they're not really at peace there. Uh, Peace is something the winners have. And that's why they talk about peace, because only winners write histories. Uh, Losers don't write the histories, you see. And so... The, the, the Jew is shalom, peace, means victory, means wholeness, means health, means being in. So he wishes that for us in Christ Jesus who gives us the victory. So why did he write this letter? What's the purpose of the letter? Verse 12 tells us the stated purpose. I've written briefly to encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. The stated purpose is to encourage them and to testify to them, to witness to them of the true grace. And so he then encourages them, stand fast in this true grace. It's a slightly strange sentence and clause that we have there. That is, it's hard to know whether the letter itself is the true grace of God or the letter is about the true grace of God. That is, the apostle, because of God's grace, has sent a letter to them and he wants them to stand fast in the letter. Or, the apostle has written a letter to them about the true grace of God that he wants them to stand fast in. In one sense, it makes a small difference, a very little difference at all. It's just as a sentence, it seems a little clumsy uh, to know which it means. Either way, it's a word of encouragement, the word of the gospel encouragement, and in a few moments I'll try and show you why it is. When you look at the themes of the gospel, of the epistle, of the letter, you'll start to understand it. One of the basic themes is the salvation that we have in Christ Jesus that is theirs. 
So you see it, for example, in 1 verse 5, it talks about the coming salvation. In 1 verse 9, it talks about the salvation of their souls that they're receiving. In 1 verse 10, it goes on concerning this salvation. Or in chapter 2 verse 1, we're still... Uh, verse 2, we're talking about growing up into your salvation. Salvation is one of the great themes, especially in the early part of the chapter. The salvation that is theirs in Christ. It also talks of this salvation in its temporary nature. That is the temporary nature of this present life, of our expectancy for the salvation to come. Look at 1, 3 to 4. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ the dead, into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you. What God has regenerated you into is a a place in heaven, is a future, is something that is coming. And so it talks about the salvation, verse 5, that is soon to be revealed. Or in verse 13 we read about, prepare your minds for action, be self-controlled, set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. So it talks of being saved and yet looking forward to the salvation that is soon to come upon them. And so it talks of life now in a temporary character and turns its attention to how you are to live in this world as you wait for the next one. A key turning point in the epistle, I think, uh, in the letter is verse 11 of chapter 2. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God at the day he visits us. Here is a a hinge to the whole epistle. I'll show you the structure of the epistle as I understand it in a moment. But verses 11 and 12 capture the sense of the epistle. If you're going to learn a couple of verses to remind you what 1 Peter is about, verse 11 and 12 will be the one that captures what 1 Peter is about as well as any other couple of verses in the whole letter. It is how to live in this world as you await for the visitation of God. We have been saved. We know he is coming. He is coming to rescue us and save us and give us heaven. How do we live now as we wait for it? And so it talks of their sufferings. Not organised imperial persecution. There's no edict to destroy Christians. It's just that the pagans that you normally live with won't like you anymore. It's just that you no longer will live in comfort in this world because this world will be hostile to you. And so suffering is to be expected. Verse 12 of chapter 2 live as though pagans, as though they accuse you of doing wrong. Or verse 18 speaks to the slaves and talks about what do you do if your master is harsh. In chapter 3 verses 1 to 7 it's talking about the unbelieving husband and talks to the wives about not being afraid in that context. Chapter 3 verse 9, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult but blessing because of this you are called. Or verse 14, but even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened, but in your heart set apart Christ. And the whole theme of suffering takes over the second half of the, of the letter because it is in this world that we are going to live out our salvation and this world is hostile to that very salvation. That is, in the face of sufferings in this world, it is a word of encouragement to the Christians 
and encouragement that is, that is to be found in the grace of God that they already have received. So he's writing to Christians who are suffering and about to suffer more, living in a world that is hostile to them. He's writing to them a word of encouragement. And the word of encouragement is about the grace of God, about their salvation. Just to get the bearings, here's the, as I understand, the structure of 1 Peter. It's not a very good structure yet because we need more details fitted in under these two sections in particular. But verses 1 to 2 just gives you a greeting. Verse 3 through to 2 verse 10 is about the great salvation that God has won for them. About the grace of God in their being rescued now and in the future. Verse 11 through to of chapter 2 through to the end of chapter 5 almost is how the saved are to live now in this sinful world that is hostile to them. And then in the last couple of verses, the greetings that I read to you just a few moments ago, where he tells you how the letter's come and why he's written it and the rest. Now, as you can see as an outline, it doesn't work too well because we've got such a huge section here, haven't we? And you want to know what are the subpoints to it, what's the structure that falls underneath it. But get a view of the forest before you start investigating too many of the trees. There is a structure underneath it, although it gets swallowed up in the suffering theme. So in chapter 2, verse 13 to 17, you'll find out about uh, living as citizens. In chapter 2, verse 18 to 25, living as slaves. In chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, about wives and husbands. But then from 3, 8 onwards, it goes on about living in suffering in the world that you're in. Let's return to our passage that I'm supposed to be looking at today, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 the greetings up the front, which is mainly about the recipients of the letter. I suggested a little while ago, the big distinction in the first century world and in the Old Testament is the distinction between Jews and Gentiles. It's not much of our distinction today unless you grew up in Bellevue Hill like I did, where everybody was Jewish or Gentile and in fact nearly everybody was Jewish and me. The, the Gospel overcomes the great distinction. But the distinction has to be understood if you're going to understand what the New Testament is about. For the Jews were God's chosen people and the Gentiles were the rest. The word Gentile can be translated nations, I think better translated nations most often. It's the Jews and all the other nations. But it also translated pagans several times here, barbarians. They were the anti-God people, the, those who opposed the God of Israel, those who did not know the God of Israel, those who had no place in the inheritance of Israel, those who were cut off from the promised land. They were the enemies of God. That was who they were. And so the Jews would have nothing to do with them. You weren't to marry them. You weren't to let your children marry them. You weren't to dwell with them in the promised land. You were to kill them all. You weren't to have them even as your slaves, really. You weren't to deal with them in any way you could. If you met them in the street, the Pharisee would say, if you ever touched one, you had to go home and wash yourself because it's like touching a dead body. This is hardly friendly neighbourhood relationships that every time I touch you, I've got to go and wash off the death that has contaminated me by my association with you. The Gospel overcomes this hostility because in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, the two become one. Ephesians chapter 2 is about this uh, great theme because the way in which the Jew gets to God is through the death of the Messiah and the way the Gentile gets to God is through the death of the same Messiah and we both come into the presence of God and call him Father because we both have the same spirit of the Messiah. 
But while it overcomes the division, it doesn't obliterate it. That is, the gospel goes to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And Peter is the apostle to the Jews just as Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. Because I, a Jew, have become a Christian doesn't mean that I cease to be a Jew. Because I, as a Gentile, have become a Christian means that I will have renounced my Gentile ways but on the other hand, I'm still not a Jew. I'm a Gentile Christian. The Jew, he has become the true Jew because he has fulfilled his Judaism and has gone on to acknowledge the Messiah. The Gentile has become a converted Gentile and has now come under the Jewish Messiah. But the salvation is of the Jews. We Gentiles are the wild vine that have been grafted on to the true vine. The true vine is Israel. God has broken off some of the branches of Israel but we must never think of them as anything other than the true vine, God's ancient elect chosen people. The distinction continues. Now, who is Peter writing to? Clearly they're Christians because you'll see in verse 2 they are people for whom there is obedience to Jesus Christ. But is it Jewish Christians or Gentile Christians or both? Now, can I assure you that nearly every commentary that I've got, I think every commentary that I've got, and I've got about 20 of them on the book of 1 Peter, have all assured me that it is written to the Gentile Christians. I want to say that to you so that you'll know the almost total consensus of scholarly opinion that is available today. I need to tell you that in order to warn you not to believe what I say, because I'm sure it's written to the Jewish Christians. At least I am so far. As this session wears on, I may be converted to another view. But as far as I can see, it's written to the Jewish Christians. Seeing my view is the minority view of one against the world, you need to be warned of that and not believe me. But I think it's to the Jews. He's the apostle to the Jews and he writes to God's elect, which is one of the very Jewish ways of thinking about themselves. And he writes in a way that the NIV covers for you. The word scattered is the word diaspora. He writes to the elect of the diaspora. And the diaspora is the Jewish way of talking about the nations. When they were living as God's people in God's land under King Solomon, they were living as the, the kingdom of God. But when the northern, tri the northern tribes were destroyed by the Assyrians, those ten tribes were scattered into the diaspora. They were scattered, they were dispersed. And that became the word for it. The, the Babylonians conquered the two southern tribes and they further scattered them. So at the time of the New Testament there were many, many more Jews, four or five times as many Jews living outside of Palestine as there were living inside of Palestine. And so you either lived in the Promised Land or you lived in the Diaspora. Here is the Apostle to the Jews writing to the elect of the Diaspora. If it wasn't for verse 2 you'd think he was writing to a group of Jews. But verse 2 makes it clear that it's got to be Jewish Christians. People say it can't be to the Jews because chapter 1 verse 18 talks about them giving up the futile works, the futile ways inherited from their fathers and they say no Jew would think of his ways inherited from his fathers as futile. But I think an Old Testament Jew would because frequently in the Old Testament the very same Greek word is used of the ways in which the Jews were living in the futility of their mind. Uh, certainly the, the covenant of Moses is not a futile way to live but the ways in which the Jews lived in rejection of the covenant of Moses was indeed a futile way that they handed down to their children. In chapter 4 it talks about the pagans no longer 
Uh, the pagans are unhappy with you because you no longer live in debauchery and in drunkenness as you used to with them. And I think it is the anti-Semitism that has come from our... Sorry, it is the pro-Semitism that has come from our guilt about anti-Semitism that makes us unable to accept that Jews are sinful. That is, uh, the Holocaust was an awful thing and we must never pretend it was anything else but awful. It was dreadful. And the racism that gave rise to that which led to the persecution of the Jews is something that the world is right to be repentant about and deeply sorry over. However, we mustn't move to the point of losing touch with reality. A Jew can be debauched just like a Gentile can. A Jew can be a drunkard just like a Gentile can. And when you read the New Testament, you read the Gospels and the preachings of John the Baptist or the rest of it, you'll see that there was no idea amongst the first century Jews that were Christian that the Jews could not be sinful. And of course they could be doing the same things that the pagans were doing and yes, the pagans could be unhappy that now through the gospel of Jesus, the Jews becoming Christians were no longer living like that. It doesn't seem to me that's a reason to overthrow the words that is the Jewish Christian. But please, remember, everybody else in this world thinks it's Gentile Christians. You keep thinking that. Uh, I don't mind you being wrong. At least you're wrong with the best company, um, except for me. However, let's see what it does say of them. Two things in particular. They are elect and they are strangers. For God chose Israel, God elected Israel to be his nation, to fulfil his plans for the future. The election means that they become not proud, you don't be proud of your election, but humbly dependent upon him. We are not God's chosen people because we're the best thing going. We're God's chosen people because out of his mercy he chose us though we were the weakest of all the nations, though we were the smallest of all the nations. God chose us because he loved us, not for any other reason. It teaches you humility and dependence upon God. Peter is now calling these Christians God's elect. And this election that he is talking about here is a Christian election and a Trinitarian election for he goes on in verse 2 to explain their election. It happens by the Father's foreknowledge. God is seen as God the Father. He is called the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ in Ephesians 1 verse 3, Ephesians 1 verse 17 and here in verse 3 as well. That is, the word Father is a despised word in our present society, especially when it is associated with authority because that adds up to a thing called patriarchy which is the boo-hiss of this world today. There is nothing more politically incorrect that I can imagine than to say, I believe in patriarchy. So, I believe in patriarchy. <laughs> I believe in it because the God of the Bible is the patriarch of all patriarchs. He is the one from whom patriarchy has come. He is not just accidentally the father of some people, he is eternally the father of his son. It is of his very nature to be the father. Christians of all people cannot be anti-patriarchal. Now, that is not to say Christians approve of all the wickedness that all fathers have done in all times. In fact, all wickedness done by fathers is a terrible blasphemy because they should be representing the father in heaven who has never done those wicked things. It is a perversion of true patriarchy is the way sinful fathers live. But don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. The very concept of patriarchy is built into the very nature of God himself. It is the Bible's word for God. 
and it's interesting in the non-sexist kinds of liturgies that people are writing today that they want to pray to God without using the word Father. And so they pray, O Almighty One, or O Creator, which always depersonalises God at the very point at which I'm talking to him as the person. It ruins prayer. We approach God as our Father in heaven, as Jesus taught. And it requires the Spirit of God to know God as Father. It is a great worry when people who claim to have the Spirit of God want to drop Father out of the way in which they know God. It makes you wonder whether they have the Spirit at all. His election, his choice, was by his foreknowledge. Now, with God, foreknowledge is not knowledge beforehand. It's not pre-knowledge, pre-science. Foreknowledge is plan or destination or determination. Uh, The RSV actually translates it, destination here. See, because God knows, because God is the creator, the way he knows is greater than the way we know. Even thus, we still have this kind of knowledge. I mean, hands up those who know what they're doing Saturday night. There are some people who know the rest of you. Why don't you invite each other out? Now, (laughs) we know what we're doing on Saturday. You missed your opportunity. You weren't looking quickly enough, were you? You know what we're doing on Saturday. How do you know what you're doing? What does it mean to say, I know what I'm doing on Saturday night? Does it mean that you're sitting there and you've got a vision of yourself and you can see yourself down there doing that thing at the moment? No. It means I'm going to do it on Saturday night because I know it. Now, the trouble with the illustration is you and I are not God and we might break our leg and not get there on Saturday night. That's right. The place might burn down. We can't make it on Saturday night. We're not perfectly in control. But even we can know things in advance in the sense of determining they will happen. That is how God knows. His foreknowledge is his plan. You'll see it in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, Acts chapter 2, verse 23, and Acts 4, 28. Acts 4, 28. God's foreknowledge operates through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. At first sight, this is a little strange because the order of the Trinity seems a bit changed. Instead of saying Father, Son, and Spirit, he says Father, Spirit, Son. It also seems strange for some of us who are well taught in our theology because we know sanctification is a process. So how can you be chosen by a process? I mean, you're a bit sanctified, is that enough to be elected? Are you then sanctified some more and you're not yet elected? At what point are you sanctified enough to be elected? And anyway, why do you have sanctification before justification? Because it's in the next verse which talks about being sprinkled by the blood of Jesus. Surely you should be justified first and then you go through the process of sanctification. Well, if that's the problem you have with the verse, friends, let me assure you your theology is right and your biblical understanding wrong. Because within the Bible, the word sanctified is used more commonly to talk about not a process, but an act. Certainly what the, what the, the theological, systematic theology is trying to preserve is right and true, but just it uses the biblical word unbiblically. That's a problem. Because the sanctifying in the New Testament is to be consecrated. This cup is sanctified to the use of Philip Jensen. Uh, Seeing I've got a sore throat, can I encourage you to keep it that way? It doesn't mean it's pure. In fact, now that I've drunk out of it, it's impure. I should have backwashed it to prove it to you. It is impure. (laughs) It means it's been set aside. It's been consecrated. It has been established as Philip Jensen's cup. I'll even put my initials on the side of it so as to make sure this is a PDJ cup. Then it's been sanctified. 
So it speaks of the work of God. He has chosen people. How has he chosen them? By his spirit setting them aside, sanctifying them for Philip Jensen to drink out of. No, set aside for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. That is how God's election has taken place, for obedience to his son. Now, the obedience here is not just the ongoing obedience of life, but it's obedience to the gospel. You'll see it in chapter 1, verse 22. Now you've been purified yourself by obeying the truth. We don't like using the word obeying the gospel because we're trying to convey that the gospel is by faith, not by works, and obedience sounds a bit worksy. But the New Testament's not as embarrassed, and it uses the phrase in Romans chapter 1, verse 5, Romans chapter 16, verse 26, or in 2 Thessalonians 1, 8, and it uses it here a couple of times. They've been set aside to obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, to obey Jesus, and in that obedience to be sprinkled by his blood. It's an allusion back to Exodus 24 when all the people of God met with God and he established his covenant with them. They didn't have lawyers back in those days, which was a blessing of some kind, and so they didn't have contracts to write up, and so what they did was they had covenants, and covenants were done with dramatic actions. The dramatic action there was they sacrificed a whole lot of bulls, and then he got the blood and he said, now, do you people going to obey the covenant? They all said, yes, we will obey the covenant. And he said, right, so he poured some of the blood on the altar, and then he got the other blood and he poured it on the people. A fairly dramatic thing. You would remember the dry cleaning bill afterwards. You would remember the time you turned up to church and they threw blood all over you. Very vivid reminder of the sacrifice that is at the heart of being right with God and of being God's people. And the covenant that you are making that God has made with you through the death, the violent death on his behalf. And so Peter is writing to God's new elect not chosen in and by and through the physical descent from Abraham, not chosen by that covenant with Moses, but chosen through the Spirit for the covenant with the Son, sprinkled by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's one other thing to say about these people. Not only are they elect, they are also strangers. Strangers in the world, aliens, that is, stateless people, refugees. God's chosen people are the world's rejected people. They're seen in the diaspora. They have such a high status with God and yet they have such a low status with the world. And as such, they have no one to protect them but God himself. And they will suffer and be persecuted and despised and misunderstood and unwelcome and alienated like refugees always are. And they, will have not their, they won't have their roots and their hopes and their dreams and their identity in their homeland but rather in heaven, not in this world, but in the world to come. For the world will not love them, but despise them. And so they are God's chosen refugees. Verse 1 and 2, therefore, anticipates the theme and structure of this word of encouragement from the Apostle. As the refugees, we need the encouragement, because it's going to be hard to live in this world, in this university, in this semester, as Christian people. We need the encouragement because the world hates us and dislikes us, despises us, and doesn't want to have anything to do with us. But that encouragement is found in the grace of God. It is found in our election to salvation. It is found in the sprinkling of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is found in the sanctifying work of the Spirit, setting us aside to be God's people. 
And when we hear of the grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ, then we will understand our relationship to the world, why it is we're suffering, and how to respond to that suffering. So what have you and I, as we start this session together? Well, let me ask you, are you one of God's chosen refugees? Well, you can know if you're chosen. Have you obeyed the gospel of Jesus so that his blood has been sprinkled on you? If not, please, in the yellow cards that I want you all to be filling out in a few moments, right now is a good time to fill it out so we can collect it up afterwards. It's the address card to make sure that your change of address hasn't happened this session or has happened and keep our rolls up to date. Saves us an enormous amount on mailing, so do just fill out that card for a few seconds. If that is the case, if you know that you're not chosen and you need to be, then why don't you drop the nine to us saying, how can I be sprinkled by his blood? We'd love to talk to you about it. But if you know that you have been, then my friends, not only are you chosen by God, which is great news, but remember that you're a refugee. The world will not love you and you need to learn from the Apostle Peter how to live as God's chosen refugee. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this word of grace. We do pray that you'd help us to understand it, that we might know our salvation and we might know how to live in the world that is out of step with that salvation. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the talks on philipjensen.com. Please check our copyright page before recording or reproducing any material on philipjensen.com.